Happy Mother's Day and good morning, afternoon, evening, whenever it is that you happen to be tuning in. You know, I, I actually thought this week about printing out pictures of you all and then taping them to the chairs. That way I would have someone to look at as I was looking at the chairs. Like, for example, I know the Neves always sit there. My family is right there. The Kessners here. The Stewarts are in the back. Bob and the Finns are on the other side. But I, I decided against it, and I'm just going to try my best to just look at the camera when I'm talking because I know that's where you all will be looking as well. But admittedly, this is, this is hard. I heard an interview recently with a pastor whom I really respect and have valued his ministry and his insights. And he was making the case in this interview that it's not a big deal to preach to empty chairs, to empty pews. And the reason he was doing, he's saying that is because he's ultimately he's preaching for God's glory. He's preaching for God. And the words going out is all that actually matters. And in a sense, I, I agree with that, of course. God must be pleased in the preaching over any man or woman that may be sitting in the pews. So that, and that much I agree. But that view also falls short, I think. We really are missing something without having you all here in the pews. Uh, preaching is relational. It is responsive. Can you imagine someone in the early church, maybe even just a hundred years ago, saying something like that, that it doesn't really matter to have any, an audience when you're preaching before there was any video recordings or audio recordings? Of course not. It, it matters that we are preaching to empty chairs. If it didn't, then we might as well not even do a video at all and just put out an MP3. Or maybe don't even worry about it at all and just listen to something that's already been pre-recorded, if that's acceptable. Uh, you could just listen to the recording and be good. But after all, it is lamentable that we aren't able to meet in person right now. I'm glad that we have things like video recordings and Zoom meetings, but which, by the way, we're not going to be doing this Sunday afternoon. I hope that you saw that email. But how long should this all last? That is the question that many churches and Christians are facing now. This is where God's providence has us now. We need to learn to accept that, as I said back in April when I preached then. But we also need to consider God's will and His providence in bringing about a change. And regardless of what human institutions say, the church is essential. That's according to King Jesus. The gathering of the saints, whatever that looks like, if it's in cars, if it's outside, if it's in secret, if it's in a building, in home groups, whatever it is, it is essential. Worship is essential, and we need to distinguish worship, church. There is, of course, a sense as Christians that in everything that we do, it is worship, right? That is what Colossians 3.23 says, do all that you do unto the Lord. So, for example, your vocation, your work, that should be worship for you. The way that you raise your children, the way that you love your neighbor, even the, the seemingly menial tasks that you go through day by day, those should be worshipful. But we have to understand this rightly. And a good way to look at it is by considering the commandments. The Ten Commandments exist in what we call two tables of the law. The first table relates to God. The second table relates to man. And so all of those first ways of worship that I mentioned, those things really fall under the, the second table, how it is that we relate to one another. But what about the first table, commandments one through four? There is overlap here, of course, 
But the first table of the law instructs us on how it is that we are to worship God, and specifically how we're to worship God corporately as a gathered body. And, I, and we haven't been able to do that for a while now. It's actually been nine weeks. This will be the ninth week that our congregation has not gathered as a community. And it's important to remember that this, this whole thing, this coronavirus, this COVID-19, it's not just something that is against the church. It's worldwide. It affects businesses as well. But I wanted to offer encouragement for you that as things start to open up and restrictions and other things begin to lessen, we need to figure out where the church fits in in that. And remember that the church is essential. It doesn't matter what any governing institution says. Our King Jesus has made that to be clear. Because what we've been missing out every Sunday as we have not been gathering every Lord's Day is a, is a little taste of heaven, church. When we gather as a community to worship God and hearing His Word preached, in encouraging each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, in prayer and in observance of the ordinances, we are given a glimpse of what our eternal home will be like, what it will be like for us to be in heaven without the, the shackles of sin, and we gather together and we worship the Lord corporately for who He is and what He has done. And we have been missing that every Lord's Day for the last nine weeks. What, we've been ha what we have had at home is... is family worship. Maybe it is a heightened personal worship, but it's not the gathering of the saints. We're missing out on that foretaste of heaven. And even further, when we are gathered like this in the, on Sundays, in the mornings or in the afternoons, whenever it is that the church decides to meet on the Lord's Day, it is as if we are also being caught up into heaven and worshiping there. Uh, where our Lord and Savior Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And the Apostle Paul mentions over 150 times that Christians are in Christ. So in, in this sense that can't really be fully explained or fully and truly comprehended, it is like we are in the throne room of God rejoicing with other saints from around the world when we are gathering. And so it is nice that we have Zoom, it is nice that we have recordings like this, but it's not the same. Jesus, after all, took on flesh when he came to the world to be our savior, our substitute. He didn't just come as a spirit. There is something about physically meeting together. And thankfully, you know, we have it as good as we do. The church isn't specifically being persecuted here. We've been given a small taste of what that might be like, mind you, and, and I think this experience should really cause us all to ramp up in our prayers for those that are actually prevented from meeting, meeting because of persecution. But as nice as it is that we have it in comparison to other countries, we need to also remember that our shelter in place isn't the same across the board for us in this congregation and for others in this United States of America as well. There are some of us who are all alone. Some of, us has, some of us have big families. Some of us are able to continue working and continue to be paid. Some of us are, have been laid off. And we need to also remember that as the weeks go on and things start to change, people are inevitably going to have different decisions or opinions on, on what the right thing is to do, what is the right response in all of this. And so church, I would encourage you to try to be gracious with others when they disagree with you. Try to understand that some people's circumstances are different than yours. 
Try to understand as well that God didn't make us all the same. Some people have emotional needs that maybe you or I wouldn't even begin to experience. And so in every opportunity that you get, rather than grumbling with one another or fighting and picking um, arguments with one another, instead try to steer each other back to God's word. Point each other to God's word. The wisdom of God contained herein is our hope. It is our help. It is a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. God gave us this book so that we might know what he is like, so we might know his plan of redemption, and so that we might know how to live as his people in his kingdom. So our present situation is difficult, certainly, but as we figure out how to respond, church, I would urge you to, to go to this book and the whole breadth of it as well. Now, it just so happens that this is, in a sense, what Kohelet has been teaching us this whole time. Uh, from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, until this point, Kohelet, that is Solomon, the preacher, he has been instructing us on how we are to live in God's world, on how we are to live under the sun. He has been instructing us in that way, and we are here in this closing section now. There will be one more sermon in Ecclesiastes after this one, but Solomon is providing a conclusion for the matter at this point. And in this section that we have for us this morning, Kohelet is providing for us the basis by which he has spoken. You see, the book of Ecclesiastes is not some randomly put together pieces of wisdom. It's not the ramblings of a madman. It's not meant to depress anyone. And the verses that we have for consideration validate everything that has come before it. So I've titled the sermon for this, for this morning, Behold, the Word of God and its benefits. Now that is a title that can be elaborated on for weeks, but it's what I want to have our attention on this morning. So let's read the text, and after we read it, we'll ask the Lord to bless our time through prayer. So if you're there in your Bible at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the reading of God's Word, beginning at verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. My, they are given by one shepherd. My son, be aware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. May he grant us understanding and apply it to us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful to you for your word. How it is that you have preserved it and how it is that you use it to reveal yourself, to reveal Christ and to help us to know how it is that we might live. And we pray for understanding. We don't think that we have the ability in ourselves to rightly and fully understand your word. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would bless our time and guide us and cause us to be all the more enamored with you as we study your word. You are worthy of glory and praise. May your will be done in Christ's name. Amen. So, what we have here in the text that I just read seems like an epilogue, doesn't it? It's as if he said, it's as if he's said all that he's wanted to say, and now he's validating all of those previous words. There's a natural outline in the passage as well. I, I think you may have even saw it. It begins with the preacher's 
task. That's in verse 9 and 10. Then it has the preacher's confidence in verse 11. And then finally, the preacher's warning in verse 12. So we're going to use this natural outline of the passage to think about the things that the Holy Spirit wants to teach us in this section. There's three sections total if you're making a, a outline or if you're following along on the note sheet. Now, I need to say up front that this closing section is actually highly debated among scholars. If you were to take a look at 20 different commentaries on this passage, you would see that many of them actually believe that some other Orthodox teacher, or perhaps even two Orthodox te teachers, came in and penned this little closing section rather than Solomon himself. And this section really goes through verse 14, but we'll get to those verses next week. Now, it seems like scholars think this because the voice changes here in verse 9 and then also in, in verse 10. In the previous verses in this chapter, Kohelet was teaching us about the vanity of age, the habel of age, he, and he was speaking in the first person when he did that. But here, now beginning in verse 9, and then also in verse 10, he's speaking to us in the third person. I, I think you see that, I trust. But there's, there's really no reason that we should believe that anyone other than Solomon wrote these verses, just as he did write the rest of the verses in this book. Just because he speaks of himself in the third person doesn't mean that he didn't write this. And these scholars who want to claim that an orthodox editor came in at the end and tried to salvage this untamed book and to, by putting this nice little ending on it end up failing to make their case. Now, how many of you, when you get a book, begin by reading the ending first. I've heard that there are people who do that. Uh, I sometimes will do that with like a long blog or a long article. I'll take a look at the conclusion of that blog or that article, and that way, if I see what the conclusion is saying, I know that it'll be worth my time to go back and read the rest of the article. But if you were to do that with this book, if you were to read 9 to 14 first, and then go back and read the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes, you would find a wonderful consistency. You see, there's nothing in this conclusion that would contradict anything that we have read before. What the conclusion does for us here, actually, is solidify all that Kohelet has already said. You could even, and since we're in a quarantine, you know, you could do this. You could go back and you could take about 30 minutes and read the whole book of Ecclesiastes. That's how long it'll take. Not very long, really, at all. Read chapter 1, all, starting at verse 1, all the way through 12, 14. It'll only take you 30 minutes. And I think you would see a wonderful train of thought being developed, a beautiful and very modern, modern picture, picture of what life is like for us under the sun now. So as we get to this final section... What we see happening is everything that Kohelet has already said is now being brought together and affirmed and summed up in these passages. And this conclusion actually does something else. And it really just shuts down any negative views of this book and of Kohelet himself because there's a statement here that we'll look at in just a few moments. And it's contained there in verse 11. And it says this, that these are the very words of a shepherd. That is God. Okay, so it's not a human book. It's not a human wisdom that is being taught here. It's not earthly wisdom that is void from the wisdom above. It's not a secular book. It's not a sad and depressing book. It's not some randomly inserted book into Scripture that is meant to show us how crazy the world is apart from God. It is holy, inspired, divine, real, and authentic 
biblical wisdom given by God, although it does come to us in a very unique format. There's no other book of the Bible quite like the book of Ecclesiastes. So this is how Solomon concludes this wonderful book. And let's take a look at the first section, okay? This is the preacher's task. And we look at that in verse 9 and 10, and it says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So, as we get to these verses, what we have are a description of Kohelet's pastoral ministry. The concerns that he has expressed with him expressed in this letter haven't simply been professional concerns. They have been pastoral. He's identified here as a sage, in other words, a wise man, and this is not boasting on his part. It's simply the humble recognition of what God has done in him for him to be able to bring this to us. And we've considered a couple times already in this series the, the source of Solomon's wisdom, haven't we? But this sage, this wise man, isn't in some, isn't in some ivory tower writing thesis after thesis with words we can't understand or relate to, is he? He's a people scholar. He was a teacher for the people. That's the amazing thing about this epilogue. It affirms for us that this is a book for the people. It's for ordinary folks just like you and just like me. Kohelet was given, given wisdom by God, and he in turn took what he learned, and then he taught the people. He was a shepherd who fed the sheep. This is the kind of thing that every preacher is supposed to do. This is why we need, as Christians, to be under preaching, that we can be fed the Word of God. It sustains us. It equips us. It guides us, and it encourages us. We, can't, we cannot afford to be starved from it. Think about it. Whenever the Word of God was neglected in Israel, what ended up happening? They, they went after their own way. They started to look like the Canaanites. Covenant curses would come upon them. Judgment would follow. But every now and then, God would raise up a judge or a righteous king. And what would he do? They would read the word of God and they would lead Israel and Judah in repentance. And then covenant blessing would come back upon them. So behold the word of God and its benefits, church. This is what Jesus instructed Peter to do when he restored him to ministry. You can start turning there right now. This is John chapter 21. You remember that, I, I trust. Uh, Jesus was betrayed by, Ju by Judas, and he's led before the Sanhedrin. But Peter can't enter the gate because he was unknown to the high priest Caiaphas. But John was allowed in because he was known by him. And so when they're inside, Jesus and John, John ends up sending a servant girl who worked the door to go get Peter so that he could bring, bring him in. But Peter gets afraid at this point and he ends up denying Jesus three times right before the night is over. And then comes the crucifixion and then the burial and then the resurrection and finally Jesus meets this disgraced disciple and he has breakfast with him. And then after the meal, he tells him these familiar words. This is John chapter 21 at verse 15. He says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, 
feed my sheep. There's a lot more going on here that we could say, but notice the, how the three exchanges always ended. A variation of the same thing. It's feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Now I ask, who are Jesus' sheep, church? Who are his little lambs? It's not the whole world, is it? There are sheep and there are goats. His sheep hear his voice. They follow him. He knows them and he gives them eternal life and they shall never perish. Jesus' sheep are, it's us. It's Christians. It's those who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by their works. And Jesus isn't instructing Peter here to start a food pantry. Those are, those are good, of course, but that's not the point. Our Lord said that it was his meat to do the will of his Father. Well, how is a will made known? It's through words. Christ, in his temptation, told the devil that man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? By every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is what feeds us, church. That is what strengthens us. That is what a preacher is supposed to do. Certainly, Peter, an apostle, he preached. He fed the sheep. Pastors, shepherds, elders, they preach. They feed the sheep. Solomon has identified himself as the preacher in this book. He preached. He's fed the sheep. He's describing what is a pastoral ministry. This was the task he set forth to accomplish in this book, to feed us, to make us have knowledge that we may live the Christian life in a way that honors and glorifies God. You see, we also need to note that the food Kohelet has prepared for us in this book was well-prepared food. Our text tells us that he taught the people knowledge and that he pondered and that he weighed the wisdom. The idea here is that this isn't some fast food, but this was a meal that was contemplated and meditated on before he served it up. You know, as, as a pastor, I, I wonder how long did it take him to, to write this under divine inspiration? Did it just like flow out of him all at once? It doesn't seem like that from the text, at least. It says he studied and then he arranged them. He sought out words of delight. How long was this process all the while being driven and guided by the Holy Spirit as he's instructing him? When it comes to pastors, who, by the way, we are not inspired yet, when we faithfully preach the word of God, it is, it is as if Christ himself is speaking. That's what Ephesians 2.17 says. But you hear pastors speak about their preparation time taking anywhere from a few hours to maybe as much as 30 hours for crafting a sermon. But I wonder how long this process was for Kohelet. Now, furthermore, there was research and study involved, we read. He searched it out, the text says. And on top of that, after research and meditation, there was, there was careful arrangement it's funny, you read the book and there are certainly difficult areas where it's tough to see the connections. Chapter 11 comes to mind. But this statement here should prevent us from seeing this book as a collection of random thoughts. Maybe if we don't see the connection, the problem is us and not the book itself. Thus saith the Lord, the word of the Lord. What we have here is the work of the wise man, under the inspiration of God, who not only has meditated on and weighed the wisdom, but he's also researched it and rearranged it. And why? Because he has a heart for the people. 
for his son who will receive this letter and also any son or daughter in Christ. And this food wasn't served with leftovers or it wasn't microwaved meals, but thoughtful and careful words of wisdom. This passage tells us that Kohelet not only cared about preparation, but also as any master chef will tell you, he cared about the presentation of it as well. Now, in one sense, it is really the preacher's job to be more of a waiter. I've heard John MacArthur liken it to that. We aren't supposed to tamper with the word of God. Our job is to take it from the kitchen, as it were, from the chef who is God, and then bring it to the table, to the, to the people, to the sheep. But Solomon is under divine inspiration in writing this book, and so the Holy Spirit through him puts time into finding words of delight and words of truth. Now, certainly your elders and other pastors are thinking about what we say, but it's in a, in a, different, it's a different sense, a different level. And so Kohelet poured himself into serving this wisdom with words of delight. And that doesn't mean that he was willing to tickle our ears, does it? No, because the second clause affirms that can't be the case. It says that he wrote these words uprightly. He wrote them correctly. They are words of truth. He wrote them accurately. And so what we see from this, and if you can remember back to different parts of the previous 45 sermons through Ecclesiastes, is that Solomon has served wisdom, and this is an important thing to grasp, he has served his wisdom in this book in a way that is both intellectually stimulating and aesthetically pleasing. It hits us in our minds, and it lands in our hearts. If you're able to remember some of the things that we've covered in this book, I think that we would all agree about this. It is intellectually stimulating. It causes us to think about the deep things of God, his comments on the sovereignty of God and the mystery of providence. It's a book that makes us think outside the box, but it's also a book that is styled in a pleasing way. It's written to us in a way that is out of the ordinary and it grips the heart and it grips the imagination. Just think of some of the memorable phrases that we get from this book that are used in popular literature worldwide. You know, under the sun, eat, drink, and be merry, vanity of vanities, the proverbial section of chapter 3 where we read that there is a time for this and a time for that. It really is truly amazing how it, how it grips the heart and our imagination. And he did it all in an upright manner. He wrote words of delight, but he also wrote words of truth with accuracy. Michael Eaton in the Tyndale Old Testament commentary said, to be upright but unpleasant is to be a fool, but to be Pleasant, but not upright, is to be a charlatan. And Kohelet steered, us cloth, or steered clear of both of those. So as we consider these first two verses here, there's an application for both the pastor or to anyone who would teach the Word of God, even to a friend, a family member, a child, whoever. And also, by the way of deduction, application for the listener too. So let's first consider application towards the pastor or to the one who teaches. Now, Obviously, you know, a pastor must heed 2 Timothy 2.15. There we read, Do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The preacher, the pastor, the teacher of God's word needs to be like Ezra or the king Josiah who studied the law of God, who practiced the law of God, and then taught its statutes in Israel. Not their own opinions, not their own views, but God's word. But the one who teaches must also pay attention to how it is that they teach. 
behold, it is God's word. And so I'm not talking about simply being entertaining. We're not talking about entertaining goats. Anyone could be entertaining. And it is a sad indictment on many churches in the West that their main focus appears to be entertainment. Churches in our very city can be characterized by that. But what we are talking about here, teacher, is putting some effort and some energy into clear, positive, persuasive, and challenging presentations, presentations of God's Word. And Kohelet excels at this as a model for our regard. Presentations that center on Christ and His work that we, that, so that we may be able to confess with the Apostle Paul, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He is whom we know and him crucified is who we preach. Secondly, what about the listener? What is the listener application? Uh, consider what it is that you're being served when you're listening to preaching. What you're being fed, behold, it is the word of God. Remember the benefits that we've already talked about. Pay, a, pay attention, apply the word to your life, pray for understanding from the Holy Spirit, but don't be dull of hearing. The author of the letter to the Hebrews warns and rebukes his audience in chapter 5, saying this. About, this is verse 11, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. <clears throat> so then, a Christian is a person who, by the grace of God, is growing in that grace. It's a work that Christ started and that he also promises to bring to completion. But there is a danger in which a person can be sitting under preaching and hearing it, partaking of the benefits of the covenant in a sense, and yet they are dull of hearing. And so they don't grow. The author of the Hebrews expressed his listeners, or he expected his listeners to be further along, they, that, that they would be needing solid food, but they were living on milk. They needed milk because they were not mature. And, that's, and what's the reason for this? It's because they were dull of hearing hearing. They needed the basic principles of the oracles of God. And it shouldn't be that way, church. That's what he's saying here. Sure, there is a time, and this time looks different for different people. There is a time when we as new believers are fed the milk of the word, and the, and the milk of the word sustains us. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians. But when you have been in Christ, feeding on his word, drinking the living water, you move on to solid food, and you're able to distinguish good from evil. It's abiding in Christ to do so. But just think, how common is it for us to hear professing Christians today calling and even partaking in evil with no repentance and thinking that it's a good thing? Why is this? Why do so many professing Christians do that? Because they're dull of hearing. Don't treat the word like that. So let's consider this sec second section now. It's the preacher's confidence. It's verse in 11, so turn back to Ecclesiastes, please. So the verse 11 says, The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collective sayings. They are given by one shepherd. 
So Solomon says he poured himself into studying and preparing the truth in a way that was memorable and challenging, and he did it carefully and accurately. And then in this section, he tells us something about the truth that he's preached, that he's labored to bring about in a pastoral way to his people. And that is this, that the truth will lead to action. The truth is supposed to be supplied. And, and excuse me, it's supposed to be applied. And when it comes to the words of truth, it's not enough to simply investigate the truth and then give presentation of the truth, but there also needs to be an application of the truth. And he's confident that because the words are truth, because they are God's words, there will be application because God will not fail. And so he likens the words of the wise men, that is, the teachers of inspired scripture, to goads. Now, most of us have never seen or held a goad. It's basically a cattle prod, a long stick or a rod with a sharp metal end on it. Now, I'm not a farmer, but I've seen video, and if a cow doesn't want to move, you know, a farmer doesn't stand much of a chance of moving her. He could push his, all of his weight on top of the back of that cow and, and, and try to move it, but that cow is going nowhere if it doesn't want to. And so this cattle prod or this goad was used for the purpose of pushing a stubborn cow into action to get her to move. Now, I'm not trying to push the analogy too far here. I'm not calling any of us anything. But it's safe to say that Kohelet didn't write the words down that he did just so that people would compliment him for his wisdom. He had a plan in them. He wanted them to move us that it might get people moving. He's like a relentless cattle driver who knew how to use the cattle prod to get people moving. When he says the words are, are like, of the wise are like goads, he's saying that the wisdom that he and the other authors of Scripture would communicate is so vital to the honor of God that they are living and active, and so that when they are spoken or written down, they move God's sheep into action. And so far throughout this book, that is exactly what Kohelet has done. Whether it has been the goat of joy, the goat of death, the goat of Habel, which is vanity, the goat of judgment, he's again and again taking the truth and use it to move us into action, not being content with merely being listeners along for a ride. In Judges chapter 3, we read of the mighty Shamgar who slew 600 Philistines with one of these farmer's tools. And the word of God is like that unto rebellious sinners often, killing the old man and making us alive in Christ. We die to ourselves through the power that comes in the gospel, which is the person and the whole life of Jesus Christ, which we hear through preaching or read about here in the word of God and then receive in faith. The words of the wise are like goads. Behold God's word and its benefits, church. It moves us. It moves us from death to life and to a life that is abundant and eternal. The second clause notes that the words of truth are like nails firmly fixed. The collected sayings are nails that are firmly fixed. This once again reminds us of the book of Judges. Uh, the old Presbyterian minister, W.J.T. Shedd, said something about preachers, which is true for the preacher of Ecclesiastes. He said, the preacher must employ the rhetoric which Jael used upon Sisera, putting his nail to the head of his auditor and driving it sheer and clear through his brain. That's, that's the imagery here. The truth is like a nail that is to be driven in and is driven home. It's implanted in the mind, in the heart. The psalmist said, I have stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And he's talking to the Lord there. 
Colette is confident that the words of truth will do this for the elect, for the people of God. The collected sayings of the wise are nails firmly fixed. Behold the word of God and its benefits. When, when God's word doesn't do those things to a person, what should we think? Is the problem the goad? Is the problem the nails or the hammer in the analogy? If there is ever a case in which it seems like the person is not moved or firmly fixed, verse 11 makes it clear that it's not the problem of the words. The words are goads. The words are firmly fixed nails. That's not left up to opinion. They are, not they might be. So then if, if the words don't work, what is the problem? It's the beast. It's the creature. Or it's the plank that the nail is driven in. Or in Jesus' words, it's the soil. Take some time uh, later on today or this week and, and read about the parable of the so sower in Matthew 13. There we read about four soils, and a little later in the same chapter, he explains the parable. Now, at the same time here, church, I, I don't want you to be discouraged. Think of something like, oh, well, you know, I, I can't remember many sermons. I can't remember the specifics of all the collected sayings. And really examine yourself, of course. Do that. Preach the gospel to yourself and remember Jesus and your confession. But don't let the enemy steal your joy either. Remember, that's not what this book wants to do. This book is about giving you joy. So that, that's been a theme of this whole book, to enjoy what God has given you. Let me, I could maybe tell it in a story that might be able to help you. I once heard this story. I'm not, true if it, I'm not sure if it's a true story or not, but it does make a good point. There was a, a man who had been in church for a long time, and he says that he's listened to over 3,000 sermons, and he's become wary because he tried to think back over all those sermons that he heard, and he couldn't remember anything specific about the sermons. And so he approaches his pastor, and he tells him, he says, is preaching even worth it? I've listened to all these sermons, and I don't remember them. May you feel like it might be more profitable for a minister to spend his time doing something else. That's, that's what he told him. I mean, in a week from now, how much of this sermon will you remember? How much do you remember from last week's sermon? You can feel for this man, I think, right? Well, the pastor thought about it for a moment, and he said this. He said, my dear sir, I have been married for over 30 years now, and in that time, I have eaten over 30,000 meals, mostly my wife's cooking. Suddenly, I discover that I can't remember the menu of a single meal, and yet I have received nourishment from every one of them. I have the distinct impression that without them, I would have been dead long ago. That's what this food does for us, church. The word of God that we feast on and in private reading and in hearing preaching, that's what it does. It sustains us. When Kohelet says that he is confident that the words of the wise will move us and fix us, it's not that we're always going to remember every little detail. Of course not. We wrestle against our flesh still. But the word of God, the collected sayings, as it were, they sustain us and, they, and it nourishes us as we eat them, as we take them in. How is that done specifically? I don't know. It's a mystery activated through faith, through the gift of faith, a benefit from our union with Christ, but God's word is the source. And then Kohelet says the source of the wisdom. They, meaning that is, the words of the wise, the collected sayings, they are given by one shepherd. Now, scholars also seem to divide over who the shepherd is here as well. Some say it's Solomon. Some say Moses. And many rightly note that it is God, the shepherd of Israel. 
the true and living God. Walter Kaiser is correct when he says in his commentary that it is Yahweh, the shepherd of Israel, Psalm 81. He is the real source of the words of this book. And think back to the content of this book, friends. It's profound. Would Solomon, being wise, claim that his own words were like goads and like nails firmly fixed? That would be foolish for him to say so if they just truly originated in him. God gave Solomon the ideas and drove him and aided him in the composition of this book. This one phrase is enough for us to affirm the inspiration of this book, and it belongs aside the inspired works of the prophets and the apostles. The book of Ecclesiastes is not the wisdom of men, but it is the wisdom of the shepherd. It is shepherd-breathed wisdom. And that brings us to verse 12, which is our third category, our third section, and that's the preacher's warning. Let's look back here at verse 12. Read, My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now, if verse 11 tells us that what we have here is inspired wisdom, then verse 12 is communicating to us a warning against uninspired wisdom and uninspired study. You see, the warning is that we shouldn't go beyond these words. We shouldn't extend ourselves beyond them. What words? The words of inspired Scripture. The words of wisdom included in the book of Ecclesiastes and even the whole of Scripture because there are no contradictions within Ecclesiastes and the rest of the Word of God. This is all one book, truthfully. Therefore, the force of the warning goes something like this. Beware of those who give other explanations than what is contained herein concerning the mysteries of life. Watch out for crafty doctrines of men, for vain philosophies, for theologies that go beyond the boundaries of what has been said in Scripture. And there have always been things like this popping up, and we need to re avoid and reject them. You know, soon after I received Christ, there was a book that was circulating in Christian circles. I remember even seeing it in Graceland Books. Some of you might remember that store there next to Target in Pittsburgh. Um, but anyway, this book was called The Secret. And it had no business belonging in a Christian bookstore unless it was perhaps in the garbage. The author of this book claimed to have dis discovered the great mystery of the universe. And let me read to you the overview of the book. It says, Fragments of a great secret have been found in the, in the oral traditions, in literature, in religions, and philosophies throughout the centuries. For the first time, all the pieces of the secret come together in an incredible revelation that will be life-transforming for all who experience it. In this book, you'll learn how to use the secret in every aspect of your life, money, health, relationships, happiness, and in every interaction you have in the world. You'll begin to understand the hidden, untapped power that's within you, and this revelation can bring joy to every aspect of your life. The secret contains wisdom from modern-day teachers, men and women who have used it to achieve health, wealth, and happiness. By applying the knowledge of the secret, they bring to light compelling stories of eradicating disease, acquiring massive health, overcoming obstacles, and achieving what many would regard as impossible. Beware of anything beyond these. Beware of these collected sayings is what Solomon instructs us. Amazingly, that, that overview of the book sounds exactly like the prosperity preachers and the health and wealth supposed gospel that is so prominent in churches today like Bethel Church up in Reading. Don't go beyond what is written. We are instructed by Kohelet. There's, there's nothing secret about the book, The Secret. 
It's simply new age mysticism dressed up in some Christian language. But it's things exactly like that which Solomon warns us about here. Stick to the word of God, church. Behold its benefits. Now, it's not that other books that we read are necessarily bad. He's not saying that. But there are bad books which need to be avoided. The next statement in chapter 11 is not some call to end all publishing, especially Christian publishing, but it's connected to the previous admonition. You see, those who want to go beyond the wisdom that is contained in the book, the book of Scripture, they're going to be able to find a publisher. They always have, and they will continue to be able to do so until Christ consummates his kingdom, until he returns to usher in the eternal age. It was a problem in Solomon's day, which is interesting, I find. You know, there's no printing press then. It's a, it's a problem now with the advent of the internet and, and the printing press, of course, you know, 500 years ago. And it's probably an even bigger problem now to be aware of, honestly. One commentator notes that there is no end to the books telling the opinions of men, the wisdom of men, the folly of men. And it seems the books that are in view here are the books that try to scrutinize the inscrutable and explain the inexplainable. So, you can see how Solomon say that if you study these kinds of books, it will be wearisome. It will tire you out. Who cares if the person has a PhD? Who cares if they've claimed to search out some secret hidden knowledge? If you give yourself over to reading those kinds of things, you will burn yourself out. Certainly, read good books. Read books that rightly handle the Word of God. Absolutely read the Scriptures. Charles Spurgeon once said, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. But beware of anything that goes beyond Scripture. Let's look at this verse one more time, and we'll finish up. There's one other point I see Solomon making here if we think about this verse in the context of the whole book. It's at the end of the verse. He says, in much study is a wearing of the flesh, weariness of the flesh, a weariness of the body. Now, the theme of this book has, to, has been to enjoy the life that God has given you. And then if that's if the case, then to do nothing but to pour yourself into the study of books, good books and bad books, you're not making a wise decision. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I love to read. It's a great idea to read. Reading should be a frequent pastime for every Christian. But we also need to understand that there is a balance that Kohelet is alluding to, a balance that we need to find. Spurgeon himself said, the, the would-be wise man will make his study a prison and his books the wardens of his jail. Study is good. Verses 9 and 10 affirm that. But even, as, but even study has limitations, and it could prevent you from being obedient to God in other areas. I mean, you can't study to make yourself saved, for one. But even more than that, think about what this book has been about. It's been about enjoying the life that God has given to you. And perhaps, you know, studying for you is fun. It is, it is for me often, if I'm being honest. But when you study, aren't you often alone? I mean, perhaps it's just you and God, and that's, of course, true. There's nothing wrong with that. But remember the other commands of this book. Enjoy the wife of your youth. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's better with a friend, isn't it? It's really good with a friend. It's, it's best with your spouse. Kind of weird if it's only ever you by yourself, actually, eating and drinking and being merry. So whereas study is important, study matters, we need to be aware of studying the right things and doing so in moderation, enjoying all that God has given you in this life. So you see, friends, the Word of God is, is meant to change our lives. We should listen to it preached rightly. 
We should give ourselves over to the study of it. By the grace of God, it should hold a high position in our life, and we should also enjoy the other things that God has given us. And we know that those things are true because God's word tells us it is so. Behold, the word of God and its benefits. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful to you for the ability to record a sermon, to have your word go out. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to apply these words that you penned through Solomon to our life, Lord, that you would cause us to have joy in our life. Even the situation that we are in, Lord, we know that it is your providential hand which has us in it. So help us to learn to rejoice in all things. Please protect us, Lord, from, from works that go beyond your word, that offer secular wisdom to us, Lord. Let us not be deceived by such things. Protect us all for Christ's sake. We ask this all in his name. To you be glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.